The SEC is one year away from hosting a bit of a Big 12 reunion in Texas and Oklahoma. They remain stuck in purgatory of their old conference, but they're there for just one more year. There'll be a board in the SEC come next summer, and in the SEC, they'll reunite with Missouri and Texas A&M, at which point the SEC in many ways will resemble the old Big 12 more than the current Big 12, which features the likes of BYU, UCF, West Virginia, and Cincinnati. Welcome into SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer. John Adams is on vacation this week. We'll get him back in July. But in his place, I've got a couple of guests joining me. First up will be Gabe DeArmond from PowerMizzou.com. That's part of the Rivals Network. Gabe is an authority on the Missouri Tigers. He's been covering Mizzou for 20 years. And I welcome him in to share his perspective on some of the old Big 12 band getting back together in the SEC. Later in the episode, I'll be joined by Stefan Kreisnick. Stefan covers Mississippi State for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi, part of the USA Today Network. He does an excellent job covering the Mississippi State Bulldogs. But uh, last week, he was in Louisiana, where he covered the Manning Passing Academy. And there were seven SEC quarterbacks on hand, including one strong-armed Tennessee quarterback who turned some heads with how far he was chucking it downfield. Before we get rolling here, we'd like to take just a moment and say we're glad you found us here on SEC Football Unfiltered. Our podcast has been rolling for about two years now. And whether you're stopping in for the first time or you've been with us for a while, I'm glad you found us. We're going to take next week off. I'll be on vacation next week, but we're going to crank it back up in July before SEC Media Days. As always, if you enjoy listening to us, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to our podcast so you do not miss an episode. And please consider giving us a rating or review if your podcast app allows for that. Those ratings and reviews help us get in front of more listeners. Pleased to be joined now by Gabe DeArmond. Gabe is is my friend and the publisher of PowerMizzou.com. Does a great job covering the Tigers. He's been doing it. Don't want to age you, Gabe, but he's been doing it for, for many, many years um, and, and just has great perspective on, on college sports as well. This is SEC Football Unfiltered. Gabe is is fairly unfiltered with his opinions. We <laughs> we like that here. Uh, Gabe, how long have you been running Power Mizzou? Uh, it'll be 20 years, actually, on August 1st. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate you not aging me because certainly my fully gray beard has not given me away. Well, I was going to ask you if you stretched all the way back to the big eight. I didn't think no. so. You came in just shy of, of the big eight. I was a high school senior for the last year in the big eight. So my okay. freshman year in college was the first big 12 game actually. Okay. I, I was thinking that, but I, I didn't want to put you in senior citizen zone. Yeah. Or anything here. I, so. I, I cannot, we cannot talk about the big six and uh, Henry <laughs> Iba or anything on this. Do you miss the Big Eight? I mean, growing growing up with it, uh, obviously you covered you know Missouri in the Big Twelve and now the SEC. But just um, you know, for old school conferences, do you miss like the days the Big Eight, the Southwest Conference, uh, those types of things? Do you sort of like the the new world order of super conferences? 
No, the Big Eight was what made me a sports fan. I mean, it was, you know, Derek Chivas and Billy Tubbs and uh, having to decide whether your secondary team was Nebraska or Oklahoma because nobody else was ever going to win it. So you needed a, a team to, to root for then. But, you know, Bill McCartney and, and Darian Hagan and those teams. Um, I've, I've actually said a few times in the last couple of years, if we could just go back to what conferences were in 1992, it would be so much better for fans. Um, they would make sense. You would play the teams you've always played in nearby and you would still like bowl games and interconference matchups would mean something. Now, I, I mean, you can't play anybody you haven't really played a lot of times before because they've all moved around so much and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's weird. This season will mark the, I will have covered Missouri and the sec for 11 years and only the big 12 for nine. So, I guess, you know, we're at the point where, but like I still turn on a football game and have to remind myself why Maryland is playing at Michigan instead of at North Carolina. You know, that right. that's the biggest one is Maryland and the Big Ten. I can't get my head around that. But yeah, you know, Big East basketball and, and all that. I, I love it, but it seems that um, $11 billion a year means that is uh, never coming back to us. Yeah, I miss the old Big East basketball conference uh yeah. that that's that's one that uh that i kind of mourn for there there's some things about the new alignment um i i like um some things i dislike and and near the top of my list of dislikes is that the current big east is not really the big east as right. as 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 we we remember it um especially for hoops so uh so growing up in you grew up in kansas city yes yeah yeah uh so you you, you mentioned who number you had to have a number two team uh, growing up and 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 watching the big so who who did you side with as, as your number two? It was Oklahoma. I the only jersey I owned before really ever was a Keith Jackson Oklahoma jersey, not the announcer Barry Switzer and Billy Tubbs. Like that's that's honestly where I wanted to go to school based on nothing more than those are. I wanted to go watch those teams play. Um, that's I guess not why you make a college decision. So I did not go to Oklahoma, but um, if it would have been, I might have. All right, so we'll get we'll get into to present day here. That that's a that's a good segue. Uh, we're we're about a year out from from Texas and Oklahoma being in the SEC. I don't I don't know about you, but it it kind of feels like they're in already. Um, it's like we're in this weird purgatory where they still have one more year in the in the big 12, which will actually feature 14 teams this year. And then it goes back to being the big 12, uh, even though it's been 10 teams for several years. So it's hard to keep up with, um, <laughs> but we're a year away from Oklahoma and Texas coming in. Um, you've made those trips before from having covered those teams. Um, you know, when, when Missouri was part of the big 12, which one is a better road trip? If you could kind of put yourself in the shoes of fans, which one's a better road trip? Um, to go spend like a long weekend, you're going to see the game on Saturday, but let's say you're getting in town like Thursday night. Um, which one's a better road trip? And does it differ if I were to ask you which one's better to take in a game at? Or is it the same answer? Well, so oddly, I have never covered a game in Austin. What? I, the only <laughs> time I have spent in Austin was like a layover on the way to cover a game in College Station. But Texas was one of those places that um, – for sites like ours, back when Missouri played Texas regularly, it was kind of difficult to get credential. 
you know, you'd have to like go through a radio station or basically lie to get in the press box because we're just a recruiting site and they, they wouldn't let us in, according to them. Uh, and secondly, uh, back then, I kind of had to make some budgetary decisions and Missouri going to Texas. Missouri was not going to win at Texas. So, you know, there wasn't necessarily a point to go there. So I, I can't I mean, look, Austin's a better, better city than Norman, certainly. I would have to think if you're just making a weekend trip, Austin is is probably a better trip than Norman. Um, you know, Oklahoma, it's a good place to watch a game. Um, you know, I think I was actually covering a game in Oklahoma when the news finally officially broke. Hey, tomorrow morning when you get back to Columbia, you're covering a press conference that Missouri's going to the SEC. I, I think I kind of found out about that in the uh, – in the press box at, uh, at Oklahoma's football stadium. But, you know, I mean, that is the the one good thing about new teams going to new, con- like you get to go somewhere different and you get to experience it. You know, that was my favorite thing about the SEC for the first five years or so was I got to see Neyland Stadium and I got to go to Tuscaloosa and South Carolina and Rupp Arena and experience all these things that I never had before because I'd been making trips to, the garden spots that are Lubbock, Ames, and Manhattan for a long time. Gabe, I hope you coming on this podcast will help you get credentialed to games at Texas in, in the future. Seriously. So it's wild, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Adds, maybe this will add some additional clout. Um, but <laughs> staying with these, these schools coming in, um, it's interesting because for Missouri now, there will be three former uh, Big 12 members in, in the conference with, with Texas and Oklahoma and, of course, Texas A&M. And I don't know if you'll agree with this, but you know, I, I covered Missouri for a few years. And then now, um, you know, being on the other side of that, it still to me feels like Missouri's kind of a weird outlier in this mm-hmm. conference. And that's not to say that they can't have success. They did have success for a couple seasons with Gary Pinkle. It has nothing to do with that. It's just in terms of like fit, it, it, it still feels like a, a weird fit for me in the SEC. Um, now with Oklahoma and Texas coming in, do you think that, maybe helps Missouri at all. I'm not necessarily saying on the field, but in terms of like rekindling some old matchups, sort of their identity in the SEC, does that help? Do they need that help? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, part of me, the answer to this question is, am I? is it like PG-13 podcast or am I allowed to say a bad word on this podcast? Yeah, it's PG-13, so okay. that, that allows well, us to say some so things, but I, not everything. I just wanted to check before I, I said the grown-up word. Um, no, but, but my reaction mostly to that question, because there has been like 10 years of, does Missouri feel a part of this league? How does Missouri fit in? Blah, blah, blah. My reaction really is who cares? They're in this league. They're not getting kicked out of this league. I have told Missouri fans for eight years, quit caring what other people think about you. Like, you you know, I mean, they just did this scheduling model based on like success records over the last 10 years and all that. And I think a lot of people, me included, were a little surprised to find out that Missouri was like at the top of the second tier, right? Like they, they have the ninth or 10th best SEC record since joining the SEC. So Arkansas fans and Ole Miss fans and and Kentucky fans and whatever, they can say you don't belong, but you've been ever been as good as they have in this league. You know, and the the SEC is it's such a good old boy network that I think 
Arkansas and South Carolina secretly were really happy to have Missouri and A&M in the, because they're like, finally, after 20 years, we're not the new kid in school. You know, maybe we can have some some friends sit at our table while Missouri and A&M sit over there and have their Uncrustables together during lunch hour. Um, and so now now Missouri and, and A&M get OU and Texas as as the, the new kid on the block. And I think Missouri and A&M fans would probably tell you the delicious irony to them in all of this is that 10 years ago, Oklahoma and Texas destroyed that Big 12. I mean, the Big 12 could have survived and could have been the same league it was if Oklahoma and Texas had swallowed just a little bit of ego, right? And Missouri and A&M went away, and Oklahoma and Texas just could not say enough how, well, you're going to sink in that league, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're leaving everything that matters. We hate you. No. Hey, can can we come hang out now in the SEC ten years later? And and you especially A and M fans. Well, A and M fans don't want Texas in this league. But the one saving grace is, hey, so yeah, you're doing what you said we shouldn't do. And I think Missouri feels a lot of that too. Yeah, the irony of that from the Texas side of it is, of course, as you well remember, and 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 all Missouri fans remember is the comment from former Texas AD DeLos Dodds before the 2013 season, right? And I'm paraphrasing. He said Texas's bad seasons uh, are still better than Missouri's good seasons. Well, in the 10 seasons since that comment, Missouri has a better overall record than what Texas right. has. It's just barely. It's by like one game. But in the 10 seasons since then, Missouri has a, has a better record than, than Texas. Well, in, so. in Texas, if you look at it, Texas destroyed the Southwest Conference. They realistically destroyed the Big 8 and forced they forced Baylor and Texas Tech into the Big 12. And then they destroyed the Big 12. I mean... We are about, it's a fascinating sociological experiment to have Texas in this league because Texas is the school that has wrecked everything it's ever touched. And the SEC is the league that sings Kumbaya and holds hands and is like the chain is too strong to be broken by one moron, right? Well, the biggest moron in college sports is now in your league. And like, there's going to come a time where Texas is going to try to throw its weight around and I think they're finally in the one league that can say, no, you don't get to do that here. Do you think I, I've made this point? I feel like, you know, we, we, we talk about rivalries and it's it's part of the, the charm of college sports. And even with all this realignment, interrupting some rivalries, we're getting a few back here with, with Texas and Oklahoma coming in, particular Texas A&M, Texas. Um, but I also think like everyone's going to consider Texas a rival now, yeah. right? Like, I mean, they seem like that school that everyone loves to hate. Um, whether that's fair or not is kind of on your your perspective, I guess. But I can see like, you know, LSU is going to claim a rivalry with with Texas. Of course, Texas A&M and of course, Oklahoma already have it. But you can just see, you know, Arkansas, Alabama, I could see it going down the line. Like, I, I feel like more SEC fans are going to get riled up by Texas. Texas is going to get under the skin of the average SEC fan base more than Oklahoma is. Do you think that adds up or or do you have a different perspective? I I think so in part because like Oklahoma is kind of the bully on the block in the big 12, but they've backed it up. Right. I mean, they, they, they win it all the time. Um, And Texas, you know, talks like it, but really hasn't in the last 12, 15 years, really, been that. Um, so I think Texas is is kind of the school everybody likes to hate, but it's also this whole realignment. Like, I don't really know what a rivalry is anymore. You know, like 
I grew up with Missouri, Kansas, which was back to the Civil War and like far beyond a football or a basketball game. And they played in Columbia for the first time this year in basketball since Missouri left. And like the lead up to the game was was cool because we hadn't had it for so long. I went to Allen Fieldhouse last year to cover that game. And and that was cool for the first 10 minutes because you hadn't had it for so long. But you also went into it knowing, but it's not the same, right? It's it's not like it used to be. And Texas, Texas A&M probably will be eventually, but there is now a generation of students and a generation of fans who don't know Texas and Texas A&M playing, right? I, I mean, it's it, it. So I don't know if if the hatred is is quite the same. And I think it's good for for Missouri and A&M that these schools are coming in and that there will be some natural geographic rivalries and it will bring back some memories because I feel like Missouri has has been kind of searching like who do we really hate in this league, right? I mean. Everybody hates Tennessee in this league. We know that. Um, Missouri and Arkansas, there's been a little bit there. Um, you had the basketball with Frank Haith and Mike Anderson, so that that brought a little extra level. Then Barry Odom went to Arkansas, but that, you know Arkansas fans don't like to acknowledge the fact that that hasn't been much of a rivalry because Missouri's like 7-1 and one in the last eight, so it needs to be probably a little more competitive, and the games need to mean something. Like, even when Missouri's won them, Missouri's been playing to get to seven wins in the Gasparilla Bowl. Sure. You know, so, I mean, their, their best series in this league has probably been South Carolina. I don't know that Missouri fans or South Carolina fans would say, I start every season wondering who's going to win the Mayor's Cup or if they would even know what the Mayor's Cup is, you know. But So I think it's good in that regard. Um, but it's – I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this whole thing because it seems like this – the SEC and the Big Ten are, like, separating from the rest of college football. And when you really get down to it, I don't know that that's actually good for college football. might be good for the SEC. It might be good for the Big Ten. But I, I don't know if that makes me enjoy the actual sport more because, like, I already watch a football league that only has 32 teams that ever have a chance to do anything. And it's a great league, but they play on Sundays, and I don't need to see a lighter version of it on Saturdays. Getting into to Missouri a little bit, is um, is Brady Cook going to still be the – the starting quarterback. I mean, he just kind of soldiers on. I, I know, and I know the fan base sort of goes through like the stages of grief where it's like they think they're going to find someone better. And then in like the acceptance of like, no, Brady Cook's still the guy. Is he, is he still the guy? Ultimately, I honestly have like, you're like the fifth or sixth kind of national person to ask me this because everybody's doing previews and stuff. And my answer is I have no idea. I truly think it's a three-way competition in fall camp that'll be determined between Brady Cook, four-star redshirt freshman Sam Horn, and then Jake Garcia, the transfer from Miami. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of fans, and the way Eli Drinkwitz has operated for the last year and a half, like he would love to find somebody who is better than Brady Cook. He just hasn't done it yet. You know, and and I think the, the optimistic Missouri fan, if Brady Cook wins the job, will say he got a lot better in the second half of the year. <clears throat> he played last year with the torn labrum in his shoulder. And it's his only his second year as a starter. The pessimistic fan goes, yeah, but it's fourth year in college football. And how, like, have we already seen the best that, like, is there another level for a kid that's already been on campus three years? And if there's not another level and there's nobody else on the roster who can exceed that level, what are you doing in year four? How much pressure <laughs> does Eli Drinkwitz face 
this season because the, the easy thing is like, well, he got the contract extension last year. He's got he got the raise, but but people who cover this sport know it's about the buyout. Really, is, is job security right? It's not about the extension. It's not about your salary. It's about how much do they owe you if 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 you if they get rid of you? And you know this better than I. But like, it still seems like it would be feasible if Missouri has a season that goes south, they could make make a change. Um, so yeah. what is the type of pressure he, he's facing this year, do you think? I mean, the buyout went up a little bit, at least in the short term. I mean, it's cheaper in three years if Missouri wants to get rid of him than it would have been, but it's probably not cheaper, you know, on December 10th or whatever than it would have been without the contract. Um, but there's pressure. I, I mean, this is a job that like you have to do more with less that like, you're never going to have the resources of the top half of this league. And so I think that extension really signaled to Drinkwitz, you have everything you could want. We have built a new building. We have passed NIL laws that change the way your school can recruit. We have given you a contract. We have done all this for all your coaches. It is now on you. And I mean, I talked to somebody a couple days after that was signed. And look, I want to be clear. This is not someone who ultimately can make the decision. Um, but they said, well, it kind of signals six and six ain't gonna be good enough, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I just go into this Missouri season the same way I have the last two, they need an answer. And if that answer is eight and four and Hey, he's the guy. And some of these recruits are really good and it takes off. That's fantastic for Missouri. If the answer is, Hey, he's five and seven and it's not going to work. And we got to go throw another dart and take another shot. At least it's an answer. Six and six and seven and five kind of keep Missouri in this football purgatory where might not get him fired, but it also doesn't sell a lot of tickets, doesn't do a lot on the recruiting trail, and you just still kind of go into next year going, okay, do we have the guy or not? So I've made the argument for the good of the program, five and seven might be better than seven and five. I mean, obviously eight and four is better than either one of them, but you know, I, I just I just want to get to the point where we have an answer and and quit asking these same questions. I don't know how many preseason magazines you've read at this point in your summer calendar. Is that still a thing that is, that is done? Uh, I I take it. It's not a thing for me. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, you, you've, you've got more exciting things going on with your summer. Fair enough. Uh, Well, I won't expect you to know like the three deep of uh, the Ohio Bobcats, but uh, we all know George is going to be good again, right? That's not breaking news. Um, They will be among the favorites to win the SEC. Well, they are the favorite to win the SEC and will be among a short list of favorites to, to win another national championship from where we sit here late June. If you were to spit out a short list of teams from your perspective that are best poised to challenge Georgia for the national championship, SEC or otherwise, who's on your like two or three team short list and is there anyone other than, you know, the obvious? Can you go out on a limb right. with anybody? Right. Here's the thing about college football. Like, what was your answer four years ago? Because <laughs> it's still your answer. It's Ohio State. It's in some world Michigan. It's Alabama. Um, it's a lot of people seem to think this year maybe it's LSU and Jaden Daniels' second year with, with Brian Kelly. You know, but beyond that, I mean – like last year, it was awesome for a minute to be able to say, hey, TCU can challenge. Well, I mean, like they were there. 
I think challenge is the wrong word after having watched <laughs> right. the game, but but they were there, you know. So that's the that's kind of the the thing about college football right now is if you ask anybody the day after the season ends, how many guesses do you need to pick the four playoff teams next year? Like, give me five guesses, I'm probably getting them. Give me six guesses, I'm almost definitely getting them. Right? I just pick six teams. My four playoff teams are going to be in there, so. Um, it's tough to see. I, I mean, like, I think people would say Georgia's weak spot the last two years might have been quarterback, right? And they just won the national title with ease with the guy throwing the football all over the field. Well, they're now maybe better at that position. And I don't think they're worse at many others. You know, I mean, yeah, Georgia just came in and took Missouri's best player last year in the transfer port. Dominic Lovett had close to a thousand yards and and he's like, yeah, I want to look around. He's in Georgia now, and I don't know if he'll start or not, but he'll probably get a chance for a ring. Yeah, I agree. I, I think they could be better at quarterback with Carson Beck than they were at, at Stetson Bennett. Uh, I mean, Stetson Bennett played played great the last two years, proved himself the whole bit, but I do think Carson Beck, there, there's not going to be much of a drop-off. Uh, I question more you know, the offensive coordinator change. I think Todd Monken did a great job the last two years. I also think when you have as much – talent is what Georgia has and, and as good as they are developing talent, you tend to make your coordinators look pretty dang good, right? Well, yeah, because I saw the game in person where the Georgia came the closest to losing last year, yeah, right? True. I mean, Missouri had them for th- basically for three quarters, but, and that's the optimistic Missouri fans point to those first three quarters, but I always looked at that game and said, it's like Georgia started the fourth quarter and goes, okay, how many do we have to score? Like, you know, we've we've messed around so long that we've now given you hope. And so what do we have to do here? And then all of a sudden they just did it, you know, and and um, so that's kind of Georgia is one of the teams that can just flip a switch. You know, I mean, they have like I think people finally have started to understand that run that Kirby Smart had the three or four year run up to this. They are Alabama. I mean, they were becoming Alabama and they are now fully Alabama. And it's Alabama's job to get back to being Alabama which they mostly still are. It's just they're a half step below Jordan. Gabe, thanks for thanks for joining me uh, on the pod. Look forward to maybe crossing paths with you this season, yeah. I hope. Or Well, that would be good for me because that would mean that Missouri is playing a game that uh, is important enough that Blake Topmeyer could make his return to Columbia. So uh, that's, that's really what we're all shooting for around here. I bet. Yeah, the locals probably talk about that hours on end. When is Blake right. coming back? We could get Blake. We could get Ross Dellinger. We could just have a Columbia Tribune reunion in, in, in Missouri. Look forward to it. Uh, he's Gabe DeArmond. You can find all of his coverage uh, of the Tigers over at PowerMizzou.com. He's also on Twitter, PowerMizzou.com. No dot, PowerMizzou.com. Uh, thanks for joining us, Gabe. All right, Blake. Thanks for having me, man. We're going to change gears now and dive into a little SEC quarterback talk. Last week in Louisiana, the Manning family hosted their annual Passing Academy. Now, this is an event that attracts high school quarterback prospects, but also many college quarterbacks are invited to be camp counselors for a few days there at the camp in Louisiana. And and when the college quarterbacks um, have their skills competition one night during the camp, well, that's a highlight of the week, and certainly there was some buzz coming out 
of that event this year. Pleased to be joined now by Stefan Kreisnick. Stefan covers uh, Mississippi State for the uh, Mississippi Clarion Ledger, does a great job. You can find all of his work at clarionledger.com. But uh, in addition to covering Mississippi State, Stefan was uh, at the Manning Passing Academy for the USA Today Network recently, covering all the happenings there and, of course, several SEC quarterbacks we're at that event at Thibodeau, Louisiana, every year. Some of the, the best college quarterbacks in the nation are, are there as, um, as like camp counselor sponsors. But then, of course, the, the big event is when they do their skills competition. And uh, Stefan had some, some coverage coming out of that, and we wanted to talk to him about who stood out at this event. So, Stefan, let's, let's start there, you know, particularly in terms of some of the SEC guys. Who kind of grabbed your your attention in Louisiana. Yeah, as I'm sure most people have seen, whether it be on social media or, or any of our websites, uh, Joe Milton was, you know, definitely the guy that that caught everyone's eyes, right? I mean, threw a few passes of 70 plus yards, clean in the air, you know, right in front of Peyton Manning, which I think, uh, which I think definitely struck some chords with Tennessee fans there. So that um, that was no doubt kind of the guy who stole the show. And you know, you look across the SEC, some of the guys that were there, you know, off the top of my head, Jaden Daniels from LSU. Uh, obviously impressed and with that being Louisiana you know every time he stepped up to do something got a large ovation from the crowd I think people you know in attendance were really excited to see you know what he could do and, and he delivered and threw some really nice passes in some of those competitions they do um, you know Will Rogers it was his third year there um, you know Mississippi State's quarterback and you know he's a guy that you can kind of tell is just you know gone from this true freshman thrown into this you know role in Mike Leach's air raid offense to you know, now being one of the the older guys in the SEC, fans are already kind of saying like, "Oh, that guy's still around." You know, with some of the numbers that that he's put up, and he's a guy that you can just tell is you know comfortable at these events, is is comfortable, you know, in his shoes of of being a guy that you know maybe some players ask advice towards or you know things along those lines. He, he's really kind of stepped up as you know this veteran in, in the SEC realm. Um, you know, Devin Leary was a guy that I thought looked really good, um, and the closer we kind of get to the season, the more. You know, you start to remember he was pretty good at NC State and kind of what he was able to do there. You know, NC State played here in Starkville a couple seasons ago, and, um, you know, it was a, a tight game. Mississippi State kind of jumped out early and, you know, kind of maintained from there. But it was, a, it was a pretty tight game relatively, and, you know, he's a guy that, that you know, has had some impressive moments and, and could be good in the SEC and, and had some, you know, and some of these skill competitions look pretty good too. He, he's got a nice arm on him as, uh, as well. So you look up and down the SEC and some of the guys that were there, um, you kind of look at this group and, you know, maybe the SEC hasn't gotten that much hype in terms of returning quarterbacks just because you're losing guys like, you know, Hendon Hooker and Bryce Young, they're leaving. And there's some questions at some of the major programs about who's going to step in. But you kind of look at, you know, Manning Passing Academy and kind of what some of those guys were able to do in those skill competitions and just, you know, how comfortable they look being SEC quarterbacks and the kind of the fraternity they have amongst each other. It adds some excitement for, you know, what could be a really fun year at the position here. Now, Steph, for, for people that maybe aren't totally familiar with this, this event, I mean, it's not like they're going out there 11-on-11 11 11 scrimmaging, right? I mean, this is not right. like spring game football. So, I mean, what type of work do quarterbacks go through, um, you know, at this Manning a Passing Academy? Is it is it a lot of routes on air? You know, we've seen the videos of, of Joe Milton, and, you know, he's, he's chucking it 70, 75 yards through the air. But there's no defense on, on the field right. in, in those videos, right? So what, what is sort of 
um, you know, kind of the format, you, you know, for, for this competition, really? Yeah, what's interesting is, you know, obviously in, in our coverage of, you know, the SEC and, and college athletics, right, we focus so much on that, you know, skills competition, all that. I mean, the, the event is, the camp is really centered around these college quarterbacks serving as camp counselors and kind of being coaches to, you know, a lot of kids that are there. I mean, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but the way it's set up is it's at Nickel State. It's on their campus, right? And, you know, their football field is kind of in the middle of it all. And they have maybe four or five different groups of kids kind of doing drills with, you know, some of the college quarterbacks on that field. But then there's a ton of fields spread out around it where, you know, you're, you're talking three, four college you know, quarterbacks at each of these fields. Obviously, you got some coaches from, from some of the schools in the area. Uh, the Mannings kind of bounce around to help as well. So it's just a massive setup of a youth camp where most of the time these college quarterbacks are being coaches. And then uh, and Friday night, they do this event called Friday Night Lights. That's the skills competition, I'm sure, is kind of the videos that people are seeing, this, you know, particularly the ones of Joe Milton, where, um, you know, they have all the quarterbacks come out and throw some routes. Um, they have them do this uh, moving target drill where you're basically throwing balls and, you know, trying to hit a golf cart. And then um, there's like a deep ball drill where you're basically throwing it 50 yards, trying to make it into like a basketball hoop, which Drake may won that quarterback competition. So I'm sure there's a basketball school joke in there somewhere, but um, you kind of look around it. The, the event is really centered around these quarterbacks being counselors more so than it is them, you know, running routes, things of that nature. But I think they learn a lot from that too. I think, you know, they're, do, they're learning a, a lot by, you know, trying to instill in those kids. They learn a lot by, you know, the Mannings are very involved. They kind of jump around from, you know, field to field. And, and, you know, there was one point where Joe Milton and Will Rogers and Peyton Manning were all throwing, you know, balls into a trash can with kids and, um, you know, doing kind of competitions like that among, you know, kind of in those smaller groups. So um, the, the main thing I think for these college quarterbacks is, you know, they get a chance to come work really closely with the Mannings. They get a chance to kind of pick their brains. A lot of them, you know, meet after, you know, their, their practice sessions and stuff with the Mannings. They've got close relationships. A lot of those quarterbacks do with the Mannings. Um, so that, that's kind of the whole setup, um, you know, of that camp and, and everything that goes on, you know, th- throughout the course of those, you know, three or four days that those quarterbacks are in Thibodeau for. Now, you mentioned some of the SEC guys that, that were there. Some weren't there. Spencer Rattler's been at this this camp in the past. K.J. Jefferson has been at this camp in, in the past. They, they were not among those in attendance, correct? correct? Yeah. yeah. How about Arch Manning? Uh, you, know, the, the, you, you mentioned the, the Manning family was there, but the, the Texas freshman, um, the nephew of, of Peyton, uh, was he there? Um, I know Texas quarterback Quinn Ewers was there as well, right? Um, and and how, did, how did those guys look? Yeah, they had when they were doing their announcements on social media of who would be there. They had Arch listed, um, but I didn't see him taking part in any of the throwing challenges or things of that nature. So if he was there, I didn't see him. Um, obviously, that's a guy that I think a lot of people would have been you know excited to see, especially with Quinn being there as well. But Quinn took took part uh, in those challenges and stuff in the Friday Night Lights, and Arch didn't. So if, if he was there, they kind of kept them uh, under wraps and quiet because I'm sure. Throughout the past few years, when he was there uh, attending the camp, it probably was not very quiet around him. But Lane Kiffin's son was there attending, so maybe that's the next uh, rising star in the, the Manning Passing Academy ranks. <laughs> oh, how'd Lane's son look? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't see him too much. I saw Lane posted a picture of him being there, um, but I, I didn't get the chance to, to find which field he was on. There's At some point, 
um, of those hundreds of kids there, they all kind of start to look like uh, like Lane's <laughs> son anyways. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Did you see anything from from the SEC quarterbacks, you know, some of the guys you mentioned or maybe someone you didn't mention that maybe changed your perception uh, of, of what you thought of them, you know, based on, on what you saw from them? And, and again, I know we should take all this with a grain of salt, right? I mean, like I said, it's not like they're uh, completing third and four passes against uh, a blitz in Brian Denny stadium with, with a hundred thousand fans roaring. So I I get all that. We got to take it with a grain of salt, but you know, was there an sec guy that, you know, maybe impressed you to the extent where, or kind of changed what you thought of him? Yeah, I think Devin Leary is kind of the guy that sticks out to me. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. You kind of forget that, you know, he was a really, you know, really good quarterback at NC state. And I think, you know, as he kind of slips in for Will Levis, I think there's some questions about, you know, what exactly is going to be like, what that Kentucky offense is going to be like, but you know, he's a guy that as he makes this transition into the sec, right. He, he doesn't seem, you know, too worried about it. He really talked about how excited he was to play in some of those road environments in the sec, how excited he was, you know, to kind of be part of that fraternity of, of sec quarterbacks. So he's a guy that, you know, just from talking to him, he looked you know, real comfortable in his shoes. He looked, you know, fine being, an SEC guy and, and competing with, you know, he talked about, you know, picking the brain of some of the other SEC quarterbacks that were there and talked to them and, you know, ask about, you know, defenses that they've seen in the past. So I think he's really, you know, embraced this opportunity of being in the SEC and is one of those guys where, you know, if November comes around and, and you're looking at the numbers and, you know, all SEC, you know, potential quarterbacks, you're saying, you know, Devin Leary actually ended up having a pretty good season. So um, I'll probably jinx him. He'll probably end up having a horrible season now that I've said that. But he, he's a guy that, you know, some of those passes that he threw, like you said, you take it all with a grain of salt. But, you know, the, the ball coming off his hand, you know, looks pretty good. He's got a nice arm. He's got the size to be a, an SEC quarterback and take some hits uh, and be just fine. So I'm excited to see, you know, kind of what he looks like uh, as he kind of steps into that role, you know, stepping in for Will Levis. You mentioned Joe Milton, and and yeah, we've seen the videos now circulating of, of what he can do. And and frankly, you know, if anybody watched the the Orange Bowl, um, you know, Tennessee's win against Clemson, we saw a snippet of that in that game. He wasn't quite throwing at 80 yards, but he was flicking um, some 55, 60 yard passes downfield, uh, looking like he was barely putting any uh, any oomph into it at all. And and we saw him, you know, uh, I know I saw in those videos, he was throwing it even further in Louisiana. But throughout his career, you know, he has had some issues with mechanics and consistency, accuracy, all those types of things. Now it started to come together for him a little bit more last season as Hinden Hooker's backup. And then, you know, certainly came to fruition in that bowl game against Clemson. But uh, were you able to get a feel for his accuracy at all? We all know he can can chuck it deep. That's no surprise. But how was he kind of yeah. throw to throw and, um, you know, and, and hitting targets in stride? He he did generally well. There was one they were doing the, the moving target drill of, of trying to hit the golf carts. And the way that worked, it was a, a 15 yard pass, a 25 yard pass and then, you know, the long pass. And. He completed two of the three, completed the short one and the long one and missed the, the 25 yard. I mean, it was a close miss, maybe something that a receiver would have caught instead of a golf cart. But, <laughs> uh, but he, he had the, the unfortunate, I guess, uh, timing of um, Cooper Manning was the one narrating, kind of being the MC during this. And um, Cooper is a funny guy. If, if, you know, I think he's kind of the Manning brother that definitely gets overlooked because he's not a Super Bowl champion. But, um, you know, he's, he's actually a funny guy. And giving him the microphone, I mean, he said, like, well, you knew he was going to complete the long one. I don't know about the other one. So um, I think, you you know, you, you see some of the stuff that he still has to improve. And, you know, I'm not going to bash him on, on one 25-yard pass that he didn't complete. But I think, 
you know, at the end of the day, it's it's pretty obvious that, you know, he's got the arm talent. Everything's there. It's going to be a matter of, hey, you know, that arm talent a lot of time turns into overthrows. Like, can you settle in? Can you, you know, deliver the short ball when it needs to be delivered? You know, sometimes the right pass is the three-yard pass and not the one that's, you know, 50 yards downfield. So we'll, we'll see that, you know, as he kind of steps into this role. I like the idea of him working, you know, so closely with Josh Heupel. I like the idea of him. Like you said, I haven't been the backup for Hendon Hooker. He talked a lot about, you know, what Hendon means to him and, you know, what it meant to have Hendon attend that bowl game, even though he, you know, didn't have to be there. Um, he's talked a lot about, or he did talk a lot about at the Academy about, you know, his relationship with Peyton and kind of picking his brain and, you know, talking to, to him one-on-one at times. So I think he's in a position where, you know, some of those issues, whether they be mechanical or just, you know, the mental aspect of, you know, going through four, four quarters of a football game and making the right reads, he, he showed – the, that he spent a lot of this offseason trying to improve that, right? He made that – it became pretty clear that he wants to be really good and really take that talent and kind of turn it into wins and, and better results on the football field. So he's doing his part, in my opinion, to, to be the guy that takes that talent and combines it with, you know, mechanical aspects and really turns it into a good season. You mentioned Will Rogers, and, and that's someone obviously you, you cover closely. Um, you've covered him for a couple seasons at Mississippi State. And, yeah, the joke is he's, he's been there forever, right? But he, he's really he's just going into his fourth season. And because of the COVID year, uh, technically he could play two more seasons if he wanted to. But it, but it right. seems like he's been there forever because he's, he's already been a three-year starter going into his fourth season. And, and as you alluded to, um, you know, a lot of the offseason narrative has been about Mississippi State moving away from the air raid um, after the passing of, of Mike Leach. Zach Arnett, now the coach, brought in Kevin Barbet as his offensive coordinator. They'll still have some air raid concepts, but they're going to be doing different things. We'll, we'll see RPOs. We'll see play action passes. We'll see tight ends uh, out there from, from time to time, something you really didn't see much in Leach's air raid. Um, but you know, not necessarily just what you saw at this academy, but in, but in covering Rodgers throughout the spring, um, how does it seem like he's adjusting to this system and, and what may be the kind of pros and cons for him in this system? Because as far as stats go, you know, I mean, the, the guys had three phenomenal seasons in the SEC and, and seems poised maybe if, if this transition to a new system goes well to have another one. What's sort of your impressions with how that's going for him? Yeah, I think Will is is kind of in an interesting spot where, you know, he talks so much about throughout the course of the season, throughout, you know, spring practices, he just talks about wanting to do whatever's going to help Mississippi State win, whatever system that is, whatever, you know, they want him to do offensively. But this Manning Passing Academy kind of gave me a chance to, you know, talk one-on-one with him just about, you know, what, what he thinks he could do with football in his career because he's a guy that has NFL aspirations and he doesn't talk about it much. And I asked him, you know, pretty bluntly of, hey – you know, there's going to be a lot of guys and there might be some NFL scouts too that look at you and say, yeah, he put up really impressive numbers, but he did it because he was in Mike Leach's air raid offense, right? The system quarterback label has been there for so many air raid guys. Um, you know, so many guys that have been in, in Leach's system. Um, you know, what, what do you think of that narrative? And, and do you think being a different offense, you know, helps you? And, and he said, yeah, uh, he thinks that being able to show that he could succeed in any system, whether it be Kevin Barbe's system or Mike Leach's air raid, whatever it may be, that, that he can succeed. And he's not too worried about, you know, one thing that I think, uh, like what you were asking there with what could be a negative, well, I think his numbers are going to take a drastic dip, right? I don't think he's going to have the passing yards or passing attempts that he's had in a few, you know, last few years. I mean, I'm sure his you know, completion percentage will stay good. It's It's been good, but the numbers are going to dip, right? And 
that that plays a big part. And, you know, you think back to last year, I think State got off to a – I could be right. It was like a 5-1 and one start or something along those lines. He had a huge, you know, two-game stretch here in uh, Starkville against Arkansas and A&M. And, you know, the conversation started being there of, hey, at some point, you know, if, if this season continues the way it did, and obviously it didn't, but at, at that rate, you know, you're looking at those numbers, you're saying, hey, if State's winning and he's putting up those numbers, he's a Heisman contender, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Way yeah. You leave him out, out of the conversation. Does, you know, putting up – not as impressive numbers hurt his stock. Maybe when it comes to that Heisman race, we'll see. I mean, if the state's winning games and, and he's putting up, you know, good enough numbers, uh, I'm sure it won't. But so maybe that's one way that, you know, having the numbers dip hurts him is, is, you know, in terms of those national conversations. But I think in terms of his pro career and, and wanting to get to that next level and, and following the shoes of a Gardner Minshew or something like that, um, you know, I think he looks at this new offense and, and really kind of has a chip on his shoulder, which is weird because you, you would think, you know, you're returning as a, a, a three-year starter and everyone kind of knows what you bring to the table. There's praise already nationally out there for him. Like, what does this guy have a chip on his shoulder for? But because of that narrative that's been there through the air raid, he's a guy that is not only coming in with a lot of experience, he's a guy that's coming in with, you know, a motive to to prove a lot of people wrong and to show that, you know, regardless of what offense he's playing in, um, he's good. Because he said in the past, like, you know, we've asked when he's been, you know, in, in Leach's air raid last year of, you know, what, what do you think of this, you know, label on you of system quarterback? And he would say, well, you know, it's not my fault. This is co- what Coach Leach has asked me to do, right? And I think he's right. kind of having that same approach of, hey, it's not my fault that, you know, Kevin Barber wants a different offense. I'm just going to step in and do what I need to do. And I think that approach um, could go away a long way for him. Well, Steph, thanks for uh, stopping in on the pod today. Enjoyed your coverage of the, the Manning Academy. Uh, if you want to find Steph's work, you can find it over at clarionledger.com. It's part of the USA Today network. Uh, he's done, he does a great job covering Mississippi State. Uh, you can find all of his preseason coverage of State over there. You can also still find uh, his coverage of uh, the Manning Passing Academy. So thanks for hopping in, Steph. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Next time, maybe I'll get on video and toss the ball 70 yards and see what happens. (laughs) I would need maybe uh, three or four tosses to throw one 70 yards. (laughs) How about you? Could you do it in two throws? I couldn't do it in two throws. The the line is somewhere like two and a half, something like that. We'll we'll see. We'll see. I'll I'll definitely have to stretch before it. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks. We'll leave it there for this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered. We hope to have John Adams back for our next episode as long as he decides to rejoin me after vacation. And once again, I'd like to thank Gabe DeArmond of PowerMizzou.com for stopping by, as well as Stefan Krajnik of the Clarion Ledger. And of course, thank you for listening. We'll be back with you before SEC Media Days. <laughs>